Daly goes to the puck. Took a hit from Nystrom. Four ties, seven minutes gone in overtime. Hennig. Wow, right on the second, Tonelli. Coming in with Nystrom. Tonelli to Nystrom. He scores! And welcome to episode number 23 of the Sportscasters. Today is June 1st, 2011. Episode number 22 went so well that we had to do episode 23 right away. So two shows for you in one week. Uh, I mentioned in the last show uh, that the Sportscasters are currently working with the Fatty Hockey League. want to mention that one more time. Uh, make sure you check out Fatty, F-A-T-T-E-Y, HockeyLeague.com. You'll see our logo there, and if you're on our website, you'll see their logo, which you can click. It's a very interesting summer hockey league that some of the best players from Buffalo play in as they prepare for their following seasons. And we did a live blog there on Sunday that I thought went pretty well. You can check it out at thesportscasters.blogspot.com. Also, in episode number 22, we had a chance to interview James Andrew Miller, from those guys have all the fun inside the world of ESPN. I want to thank him for joining us yesterday. I also want to thank SportsGrid, Glenn Davis, uh, for joining us. Very cool website. I definitely suggest you check it out, sportsgrid.com. Uh, very nice guy. Very nice to join us. Uh, another thank you I want to give is to Ty from the Lions in Winter website that was on uh, this last, uh, week. last week. Yep. Uh, really did a great job, I think, promoting his interview. Uh, couldn't really ask for more. He put something right on the blog, uh, sent out a couple tweets. We had a really great time with Ty. Really wanted to make sure he was thanked. And uh, hopefully we can get him on again because I thought it was a pretty interesting spot. Yesterday, w- during Three Things, we did something a little bit different, and Don and I just kind of went over the three biggest stories. But today, we're going to go back to the traditional format of each of us having three things. So let's get started. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. Alrighty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. My first thing this week, we did mention on the podcast when talking about Trestle and just all the evils and negativity about college football. Well, there are some good guys out there. TJ Johnson is a player from TCU. He was All-American, a Thorpe Award finalist, and one of the best. He was the heart of the defense, one of the best defenses in the country as a senior. Rather than pursuing an NFL career, he retired after his senior college year. He did not want to leave school. Instead, he wanted to get his degree in habilitation of the deaf and hard of hearing. Oh, yeah, of course. So uh, not really much more to say about it than that. This Just a nice kid values his education first. He got into the uh, his major because of his deaf cousin and in 
just a league, I guess you could call it, where so many things are negative. It's nice to see a kid that is just used football to get an education and not the other way around. Absolutely. That's a, that's a really cool thing. Another cool thing, my first thing, our buddy Travis Hughes. Remember Travis? Yes. This is the guy that we talked to from the locker room. The Flyers. The Flyers locker room, right? He runs, I think it's broadstreethockey.com, part of the SB Nation. And he wrote an interesting article for just the general SB Nation about how this Stanley Cup Finals is going to be one of the top five most traveled Stanley Cup Finals. Um, there's been a few in the last couple of years that have had quite a big travel log. Tampa Bay and Calgary traveled 2,291 miles between cities. Uh, the Anaheim Ducks and Ottawa Senators traveled 2,355 miles city to city uh luckily for the ducks they only had to make that trip once because they won <laughs> in just uh five games uh but here's the top five stanley cups in terms of miles of all time number five is the vancouver canucks versus the new york rangers 1994 2429 miles number four vancouver canucks versus the new york islanders 1982 2448 miles traveled Number three, 1993, Barry Melrose, the famous uh, legal stick game, <laughs> 2,469 miles, Canadians and Kings. Uh, and number two, Vancouver versus Boston, 2011. That's this one right here, uh, 2,504 miles. And number one is kind of the cool story. It's the Ottawa Silver 7 versus the Dawson City Nuggets. Dawson City. January 1905, they traveled 2,701 miles. For the Stanley Cup, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard In of Dawson City. In the middle of Canada's Yakun Territory and the national capital of Ottawa. But the Nuggets traveled much farther there that year. So... I wonder if... Uh, very Tam- interesting. Yeah, I wonder if Tampa Bay made it. Would that be the farthest possible? Tampa Bay to Vancouver? You're going from north as about as northwest as you can get to about as southeast as you can get. Yeah, I mean, it would have definitely been further. Yeah, and actually, in 1997, the uh, the Ottawa Senators alumni faced off against the Dawson City Nuggets alumni in a rematch of the 05 Cup Challenge. That's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> my second Sens alumni won 18 to nothing. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> My second thing, Barry Bonds, another guy, all-around uh, bad guy, not much love, but he is giving a gift to Brian Stowe. Do you remember who Brian Stowe is? I do not. Is that his buddy that went to jail for him? No. <laughs> Brian Stowe is the San Francisco Giants oh, fan. Oh, the guy that got beat up. That was oh, beaten that down at Dodger Stadium. Uh, Barry Bonds has decided to, as a nice gesture, to give his two children, 12-year-old Tyler and 8-year-old Tabitha, Barry Bonds agreed to pay their college tuition. So when they get there, Brian Stowe's kids' college tuition will be paid for by a baseball bad guy, Barry Bonds. So you know, good for him. And, I, and one thing I will say, too, that I think Brian Stowe, oh, Brian Stowe's attorney said was that Bonds didn't make a press release. He didn't say anything about it to the press. He just wanted to do something for the guy and his kids. So uh, good on you, Barry Bonds. Yeah, he's a guy who, you know, what? hey, you spent your whole career being a jerk. Maybe he'll spend his whole post-career being a nice guy like that. <laughs> right, right. Be a good turnaround. Pro football talk. It's kind of a set I like. Yeah. 
Uh, they are wondering if Terrell Pryor, Pryor could be the first player to attack the draft. You see, Pryor is part of this fallout at Ohio State. He was originally supposed to be suspended for five games to start the season. That suspension could be worse, could stay the same. Either way, Ohio State is essentially in ruins. Maybe not a place he wants to go back to. That was Trestle's way of like getting around suspending them for the bowl game, right? Like if they yeah. agreed to come back, he'd suspend them at the beginning of the next year. Yeah, so, so scummy. As uh, the investigation continues and it starts to focus on prior now that Trestle's kind of out of the picture. Right. One option that he has is to enter the NFL through the supplemental draft. He might not want to do that because he has to be drafted and he'll have to go wherever he wants. Now, in the past, when the draft has been challenged, the NFL has always won because of the CBA, the fact that they had a collective bar- collectively bargained agreement between, between the, players. the players and the owners. Right. Well, right now, they don't have a collectively bargained agreement, so it might be the perfect time for someone like Trestle to challenge the draft prior, prior. or prior right. to tra- challenge the draft in court and get a one-up on the NFL, and maybe, maybe, it could be a reason for the NFL and the NFL players to get together and work this out so that before their draft can be challenged, they again have a collective bargain agreement in place. Now, I heard something along the lines uh, regarding the supplemental draft that no team had, like, I don't know if you have to file or say, like, yes, we're interested in doing one. I heard no team has done it thus far, but I suppose that's, that's probably what they would do at this point, right, without without any sort of agreement in place. Yeah. I, I, I guess I don't understand what he's challenging. He wants to be involved in it? Cause well, I think what he would challenge is that he there's no right for them to draft him. He's basically challenging initial free agency, saying that there's no reason for me to go to a draft. Oh, he doesn't want to do the supplemental draft. Well, though. no, I'm sure he'd much rather say I pick his team. Right, where he right, could right. maybe go to one of those nice AFC, NFC West teams right. with no quarterbacks. So he is eligible for a supplemental draft. He just doesn't want to go that route. He could go that route, and he might want to go that route. But he also might want to challenge going that route because the only reason the NFL has won in the past is, is because they had, had a collective bargain agreement. Interesting. And without that right now, they may be ripe for the pickings. Very interesting. My... Last thing, uh, I was listening to Adam Carolla. Actually, he was doing a sports podcast or a sports talk show to promote uh, his book, In 50 Years We'll All Be Chicks. I guess just got re-released with an extra chapter on fantasy football. And they brought up the topic of bringing a little life into the announcing booth. His point being football, baseball, basketball, all these sports are watched by guys who like to joke around, who like to drink beer, who like just guys, guys, and that's who watches it. Yet that's almost never who's in the booth. It's always squeaky clean people. And he said uh, he wouldn't mind being one of those guys. He said the closest thing to that really in sports right now is Charles Barkley. He's a guy that is definitely not PC all the time. And uh, online I found... At Blogspot, where we like to blog, charlesbarkleyquotes.blogspot.com. The only article they've posted is this one I'm looking at here. It's the top 50 Charles Barkley quotes. And I think he might be the Yogi Berra of the new generation. He just has some... They're not quite as uh, silly as Yogi Berra's, but they are funny. I mean, number 50, if I I can be bought. If they paid me enough, I'd work for the Klan. Uh <laughs> 
uh, I had to explain to my daughter why that skank Monica Lewinsky has an hour special on HBO this weekend. Like, just stuff that you would not expect uh, to hear from a, a booth. We are in the business of kicking butt, and business is very, very good. Uh, I love the stuff when he was actually a player, too, even better. Number 30, when the Dream Team was about to play Angola in the... Angola and the national. Ugh, sorry, when the Dream Team was about to play the Angola national team during pregame interviews, the other U.S. players provided diplomatic, face-saving comments about how they were just going to play hard and felt strongly that they were they would win. When Chuck was asked about Angola in the game, he replied, "They're in a lot of trouble." <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, he's just an honest guy. Uh, I'm definitely a fan. Uh, just great stuff. Number twenty-two. I think the team that wins Game Five will win this series. Unless we lose game five. <laughs> so just a uh, real funny guy. And that's what I think it needs. More real people. The league. The more candid you can be, just too the more many, fun you yeah, are. Too yeah, many Joe Bucks and too just, many curmudgeons. Yeah, too many curmudgeons. Have some fun. Exactly. Speaking of fun, Larry Hughes. Uh, he's a really passionate guy about organ donation and organ transplants. Uh, his younger brother, Justin, Larry Hughes, an NBA player, plays for the Knicks. Uh, his l- younger brother, Justin, got to live nine years longer thanks to one. And the Larry Hughes Foundation works to promote organ do- donation. Uh, and pretty cool story. Last Sunday, this is according to KDSK Television out of St. Louis, and they have some video of it. Uh, the Hughes Foundation gave away gas to the first 150 people to pull up at a couple of different gas stations in the area during the day, all to promote w- awareness and maybe raise a little money. Uh, there are some Knicks fans thinking that for all the free paychecks he collected from them. It's good to see him <laughs> giving something back. Uh, ha ha. But uh, that was a little cynical joke on uh, probasketballtalk.com. But good for Larry Hughes uh, to give away all that gas because I know it sucks going to the pump when it's four bucks Jesus, a gallon. No kidding. And uh, Did he make them show like uh, the donor? The organ donor? Say that. I think just the first 150 people. And I, I think part of the idea is. You know, hey, you're getting this free gas. You know, why don't you sign your license? You know, right, right. Raise a little, uh, raise a little awareness. Awareness that way. So, props to him. Yeah. All right. So, episode twenty-three. Uh, this is where we go from here. Uh, we are going to take a break. Come back with John Wertheim. John had a really interesting article in last week's SI about Tiki Barber. We're going to talk to him a little bit about that. Uh, we're also going to preview the NHL finals. Don and I will take care of that. And then we're going to preview the NBA Finals with Lee Jenkins. Um, and then we're going to try a new segment at the end called 9 and 90 with John Cullen, who is a goalie uh, from Buffalo, New York, for the Windsor Spitfires of the OHL. And kind of a podcast fact, he will be the second Windsor Spitfires goalie to appear on the Sportscasters. <laughs> That's right. The first being Jack Campbell way back in episode number two. So let's take a break and come back with John Wertheim. <laughs> Our next guest is making his second appearance on the Sportscasters. And like my younger brother, Anthony, he is a galley. And uh, he is nice enough to join us today as he is a wandering around Houston somewhere uh, talking to us. And the reason we brought him on tonight is because a couple of weeks ago, I don't know if it was Don or if it was myself, we mentioned that Tiki Barber had kind of turned into a bit of a disaster. <laughs> and... Uh, Believe it or not, I got my SI last week, and one of the first things I do now that we've had this show, 
uh, when I get the new SI, is find the guys that we've had on and read their work first. So, like, Tom Verducci gets bumped to the back of the line because he hasn't <laughs> been on with us yet. And John Wertheim and Lee Jenkins and all the cool guys that have been on our show, they get, they get bumped, they get priority. So, and Mr. Wertheim happened to write about Tiki Barber this week. And I guess the first question for you is what made you do this story? And what was the most interesting thing that you discovered? And in a second, we will get to the outrageous statement that's kind of emerged from your story. But let's just start with what made you want to do this story? And uh, what did you learn about Tiki Barber that maybe surprised you a little bit? Um, well, I mean, I thought I, I'd always been interested in the story. I mean, here was a guy who sort of looked like he had it all set up, and it just didn't work out. And it sort of came to light when he had this, this tabloid issue and this, this romance with the woman who wasn't his wife while his wife was pregnant. But really before that, I mean, sort of the TV thing, we had sort of been murmurs that, in, in New York, this was going to be Matt Lauer's replacement. This was going to be the king of morning TV, and that didn't really come to be. And so, so there was some curiosity about that. Then I was at the Super Bowl this year, and I was doing a radio show. Uh, for I was sort of on this book tour. I was doing these radio interviews. At one point, I looked over, and I see uh, Kiki Barber, a Dallas Cowboy cheerleader, <laughs> um, and a man that dressed as Teddy Roosevelt with a baseball for a head. <laughs> in line for free breakfast. This was at uh, Radio Row at the Super Bowl, and I, I just that sort of crystallized at that moment where I sort of said, "Yeah, this was supposed to be uh, a Hall of Fame running back who was going to be Matt Lauer's replacement. Now he's in line for free waffles with uh, a Dallas Cowboy cheerleader. Uh, what, <laughs> what's the story here?" So uh, I mean, you know, I, I was just sort of curious, but we sort of hear about athletes who struggle and after they're playing, they struggle in retirement. A lot of times, they're sort of drug and substance issues, that didn't really seem to be the case, and sometimes there are money issues, and that didn't seem to be the case. And so it was just, to me, it was just sort of an interesting examination of sort of what this this well-spoken, sort of likable, smart guy who always had other interests, why was he, why, why did he seem to be struggling after uh, he left football? Hmm. Uh, one thing that's come from your story that I think has kind of upset a lot of people is that Tiki Barber, I guess his angle was going to be that he was going to kind of turn himself into the victim here. And he said that he's been struggling in New York and he compared hiding out to uh, Holocaust, people hiding during the Holocaust. Um, and that has not gone over very well. <laughs> uh, have you, were you, it, you know, it, it's one of these things where as, as a writer, you know, you, you, you like you're selfishly, you sort of like it when, when people talk about your stories, but in this, it, you know, you, don't, you also don't want the wrong things to get stressed. And right. in this case, it was sort of like that, that one quote sort of seemed to have kind of engulfed the story. And I feel, I feel bad for, for Kiki um, because I thought that, you know, that line was worth including, but in, in, in context, I mean, do I, do I think he's a raging anti-Semite? No. And also it, it seemed like more people were talking about that line than anything else in the article. I was hoping the article would sort of shed some light on a guy, you know, on sort of what, what athletes, well, why some of them struggle and what made this story unique and what made it not unique. And that line seemed to have gotten all the, uh, all the attention. I mean, you know, I, the other thing too, so, so just, just for clarification, he sort of made this analogy that he was hiding out from the paparazzi and his, his agent is Jewish and he was in his agent's attic hiding out from the paparazzi and he sort of had this, off-the-cuff line that said, you know, I, it was like a reverse Anne Frank thing. And 
I, I put it in there not because I thought it was, it was so flagrantly offensive, but I just thought that, in a nutshell, is Tiki Barber. That there are a lot of athletes who probably have no idea who Anne Frank is, and if they know who she is, they probably uh, don't, don't necessarily know the You know, they, they can't place it. They maybe have heard the name. It, it was sort of, in a weird way, uh, an appropriate use, but it also was not the most sensitive remark. It sort of steeped to sum up Kiki Barber uh, pretty well for me. Now, here's a guy who sort of has the smarts and the wherewithal to, you know, bust out a reference like that, but at the same time, he, he sort of lacks the restraint to think, you know what, maybe that's not uh, the, the kind of reference I should be making uh, in a, the magazine story. But, you know, I, I, I do feel like, uh, you know, that the fact that there were statements from the Anti-Defamation League, and, I mean, I, I want to be clear, I, I for not for one second thought that he was eating some raging anti-Semite. It just was a pretty bad uh, choice of metaphor. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting you say that because, you know, and I can't remember who, but somebody yesterday um, actually said that Tiki Barber fell into the trap of magazine being uh, profiled for a magazine. And I kind of took offense to that, uh, being that, I'm a big John Wertheim guy, and I kind of felt bad for you in the sense that you know people are saying, "Oh, Tiki Barber fell for the trap of being mag- in this magazine profile." But you got a ten-page story that you know is really interesting. It, it tells all about Tiki Barber and his career, and everyone's kind of boiled it down to one line. Is that is that kind of what you meant? In, yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't, you know, I mean, I, I don't know what the, the trap could have been. I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't pose an Anne Frank question and ask him to answer it. I mean, that's <laughs> sort of was his. Choice, but um, but, I, but I think it is a trap in, in, in the one sense that you know you spend. To me, he was very generous with the time, and we talked for a while, and I, I enjoyed talking to him. And it was sort of that one questionable quote that you know I, I, I don't regret having used it. I don't regret having put in the story. I thought it was sort of illustrative, but um, I mean, I, I guess if the trap was that you you spend hours talking and it's one line that comes to you know, the surface, uh, you know, I, I do feel bad about that, that I'd hope to be, he, he was, you know, was, was very pleasant to deal with and very forthcoming and very accessible. And, uh, you know, it's one of these things, too, where in the media, the one thing you hate is the inaccessible athlete or the boring quote or, you know, we, we rip athletes for traffic and, and cliches or for not being generous with their time. And here comes a guy where there's no editor on his tongue whatsoever and he, he gets... Uh, he gets popped pretty good. I can see how that's a source of frustration for uh, for some athletes. Are people just too sensitive in general? As far I mean, like you said, it's pretty clear that he's not an anti-Semite, and it might not be the most PC comment ever to make. But I mean, people make stories out of things that aren't really stories, right? I mean that that one line shouldn't have been the story. You know, I I think what it is with him is that people have, and I you know I'm not a football guy. I'm, I'm you know, with, with a little, you know, I live in New York and sort of knew the backdrop of the story, but it's not like I covered him in the Giants and knew all of every feud he had with every teammate. I came to realize pretty quickly this was a guy where really has polarized a lot of people, has polarized the media, has polarized people within the Giants organization, ex-teammates. I mean, there are a lot of very strong opinions about this guy on, on both sides of the ledger. And I think what happened was people read that quote and the people who had beef with him I mean, I, I hate to even speculate on this, but I have a suspicion if you know if another athlete who's better liked had, had a slip, like you know, David Wright, for example, 
who you know justifiably very well liked, had made a remark like that, would it have been such a huge deal? I, I don't know. I, mean, I think I do have a sense that there were people, uh, you know, who, who don't like Kiki Barber, and he probably gets held to a little bit different standard. I mean, again, not the smartest thing to have said, to have been said, right. but um, in context, sitting across the table when he said it, I did not say, "Oh boy, this person is anti-Semitic." I said, "Oh boy, this person, you know." It's losing his control it's, it's a little bit. Clever for his own good, but you know, it, as I mean, they say in sports, it is what it is. Yeah, if Charles Barkley makes that comment, it's not a story today. Yeah, exactly. And I think that um, you know, I mean, the other thing I, I find mystifying about Tiki Barber, I mean, I you know, people can have their opinions. That's fine, but here's a guy who's never been in trouble with the law. I mean, he's never done these horrible acts. I mean, the, the, the worst that you could say about him is you know, he had he had a bad marriage and probably. Uh, you know, may, may have taken up residence with a girlfriend before his divorce went through. Right. And there were questions about how genuine, you know, teammates called him phony. But given what we see in sport, I mean, Lawrence Taylor, another giant, is revered <laughs> compared to this guy. Right. So Lawrence Taylor is a registered sex. I mean, it, it, just, <laughs> it just seems to me that for, for as many bad acts as we've seen, it's the worst thing you can say about someone is, like, I question their authenticity. Um not that big a deal, but for some reason, uh, very, very, very strong opinions here. I'm, I'm a little, still a little puzzled by um, the, the strong reactions to a guy who, you know, you, you can like him, you can not like him, but given the continuum of what we've seen in sports, I would not say that he's a particularly bad actor. It seems like T.O. and Ocho Cinco get somewhat similar treatment for guys who have really never been in trouble for anything other than just maybe not being good guys. They're hated by certain factions of fans and other players and ex-teammates and yeah no, i mean it, it, it's funny to see sort of what fans react to and what they don't i think a lot of giants fans were upset that tiki not only retired you know when he was still quote in his prime which is this great sin apparently but, but i think there was a lot of people were upset that he sort of retired during the season so it turned into a little bit of a parade right right and, and you know just took attention away from the team and he was a clubhouse lawyer I mean, I, I think it's it sort of like, I could see how his personality rubbed fans the wrong way, but I, I still can't see the, like, abject dislike for a guy who has, has never really uh, <laughs> done anything so bad, at least by, by my reckoning. Let's get into the story a little bit more outside of that one line. Uh, when Tiki Barber retired and went on to the media career and was supposedly going to be the next Matt Lauer and this and that, what happened? Was he just not quite as good as people thought? Or did he just guilty of just saying the wrong things at the wrong time? How did it fall apart so quickly for him? Um, you know, I, I think, I mean, obviously it depends on whose perspective. It sort of depends who you talk to. And the people at NBC say he wasn't as talented as he thought he was. Or maybe people in the organization thought he was. And he would say there's a lot of network politics and in, uh, in the TV business, you know, there's a lot of office politics in the network TV business, which is probably has some truth to it. I mean, there's a lot of sort of he said, she said. I, mean, I think I think one line that was really interesting to me, is, and I think you see this a lot in sports, you see this with business, and you see, you see this in all sorts of contexts, is that just because you're good for an athlete doesn't mean you're good in the general population. So I think if you took all NFL players, said who's the most likely, you know, who's the most likely person to be a news reporter? Tiki Barber ranks pretty high on that list, but that doesn't necessarily mean he's the most likely person to report on the West Bank from the general population. 
just just because you're you know have a good head for business in the clubhouse doesn't mean you're the next Warren Buffett. And you sort of see this a lot in in sports that um, you know no athlete and I and I understand this to some extent. I mean, no athlete just wants to be an athlete, right? They all want to be, they want to be a record producer. They want to be a clothing designer. I mean, you, we we've seen this for for a long time now. And Tiki Barber, same way. He didn't want to be put in that box of just an athlete. But I think just because you're well-read on that team plane doesn't make you, you know, uh, uh, a lit major. Just because you, you happen to have a good head for business and in your locker room doesn't make you more buff. And I think this was the case with TV, that you sort of get some artificial confidence because people say, oh, you know, you're for, for a jock, you do a good job. But that doesn't mean necessarily want Tiki Barber, uh, you know, reporting from, from Mogadishu or, you know, sort of, I mean, I think, you know, he had visions of being a war reporter. And I think that that uh, quickly did come to pass. And I think when he did sports, it was sort of he saw it as being a little bit beneath him and maybe was a little sloppy in some of his wording. I mean, I, th- I think what he said about Adam Frank was probably the same way he called Eli Manning's leadership comical. It's probably the same vein, which is, um, you know, it's it just a, a remark that probably if he had more time to think about it, he wouldn't have, have made. So I think he was a little bit floppy sometimes on the air with his word choice, and it just kind of, um, you know, I mean, I, I think some of it was office politics, that Jeff, Jeff Zucker, who very clearly was the person who helped bring it to NBC, lost some power. I mean, I think it was, it was a lot of things, but I just think some of it was being good for an athlete doesn't mean you're necessarily good in, in absolute terms. Do you think that there was some jealousy uh, amongst his new colleagues in the media that he didn't necessarily pay the dues and was just given these fantastic spots in the media while they had grinded it out, maybe at like a new house in Syracuse and worked their way up through the different markets? Yeah, yeah I, I think there was some of that on both sides. But I think that his, his, there was some jealousy among the ex-teammates. I mean, they, these guys, you know, they retire and you say, what am I going to do with the next 30, 40 years of my life? Tiki Barber retires and he's got this seven-figure network TV deal waiting for him. So I think there was some jealousy from his teammates, from his old colleagues, and I think definitely there was some jealousy from his new colleagues, exactly what you said. Look, I've been doing the, you know, I did the drive-time weather in, in Scranton, Pennsylvania for six years, and then I moved to Harrisburg in Philadelphia, and finally I got to the big time and I paid my dues, and here comes this guy 90 days removed from a football field, and suddenly, you know, he's making millions in salary and, um, you know, if you, I mean, if you're reading the ESPN book, you sort of know that egos can be kind of fragile in TV, yeah. and there's a lot of insecurity and pecking order. Imagine, imagine Tiki Barber, not even a sports guy, but I think if you're a sports guy and, uh, you know, whatever, Nick Saban or, you know, better, Urban Meyer walks onto the set, you can respect that. But when you're uh, in news and you want to be the one covering the Virginia Tech shooting and the guy who was, you know, in the Giants' backfield 90 days ago is suddenly getting that assignment, um, who's friends with a network boss, it's, it's easy to see how uh, that doesn't engender great sympathy among your, among your news colleagues. A long time ago, it seemed like Tiki Barber uh, had a brother in the league named Rondé. Uh, <laughs> it almost seems like it's getting to the point that... It seems like it's getting to the point that now Rondé Barber had a brother in the league named Tiki Barber who had this disastrous post-career. Uh, do you think there's any jealousy there? Do you think Tiki's a little jealous the way things have went for Rondé in football since he's left the league? It seems like Rondé's just kind of been in this for perfect situation in Tampa Bay his whole career. He never left it. His numbers are getting better and better and better. And now here he is potentially being a Hall of Famer. 
Um, no, I, I mean, I don't think there's there's jealousy. I mean, I think they're they're closer than that. But I mean, first of all, one one angle to the story I think is funny is that um, not funny, but the sort of an interesting angle is you know in the beginning it was Kiki and his brother, and they even completed each other's sentences, and they were like one person, and they were sort of their identities were conflated. No, nobody says wait which one is which now. I mean, there's no question that these two twins now have very distinct identities. Um, also, you know, Tiki comes, and he's, I, I think you know, Tiki was the higher pick, and he comes to New York, and he's a sort of media celebrity, and he's got book deals, and he's going to fancy dinners, and he's meeting politicians, and these hedge fund billionaires, and Rondé's down there in sort of sleepy central Florida, and he lives on a golf course, and he doesn't have these interests or these ambitions, and, you know, now it's a little different. You see that sort of this devotion that Rondé had has, has paid off well, and you see that Tiki's sort of moving in these elite New York, Manhattan power circles really didn't pay off so well. And I think that, I don't, I don't think there's jealousy, but I definitely think that um, Kiki sees his brother and says, well, wait a second, you know, he's, he's got the same genetic code I do. Uh, maybe I've still got a few more years in me, too. I mean, I, I think that Rondé's success into his mid-30s is definitely, uh, you know, a factor in Kiki going back out there and yeah, that was actually going to be my next season. Uh, do you think there's a spot for Tiki Barber in this league still? Do you think maybe getting away from it for a few years and refreshing his body could work to his advantage? Or do you think he's just too far gone and uh, he's not going to be able to get himself in the shape needed to play if there is football to play? No, I mean, I, I think I think he's in great shape. I mean, I saw you know I, I saw the workouts with my own eyes. I mean, he's he's in great shape. I mean, he he does not look like a guy who's been out of football for five years. And remember when he retired, it wasn't like oh his body gave out on him and here was this sort of you know sad guy deteriorating and he's out of the league. I mean, he was he left in great shape. He stayed in shape and. You know, I don't know, I mean, if he's a thousand-yard rusher, probably no. But, I mean, the other thing, too, is that he, he would not have undertaken this comeback if um, there hadn't been interest from other teams. I mean, I think he got pretty good and reliable intel that, yes, if you, uh, you know, if you decide to come and come out of retirement, we would definitely be interested in you. Um, I mean, I think, you know, there's sort of the clubhouse lawyer component, and I think he's probably a better match for some teams than for others. And I think that... You know, I, I can tell you he will not be playing for the New York Giants. But, um, but no, I mean, I, I think I think he can definitely help the team. I mean, if it's, um, you know, it's, it's going to be a, a situational kind of thing. But and I, don't, I don't think he's going to put up the numbers he used to, but I definitely think there's a place for him in the NFL, yeah. Let's talk about two other things before I let you go real quickly. Uh, you kind of mentioned earlier that your book t- you were on a book tour, and, of course, that book was Scorecasting, and you came on this show to talk about it, and we really enjoyed the book. Uh, looking back, now that it's probably calmed down just a little bit, do you, are you proud of the book? Was the book a grand success? And do you, pl- you, you said you, you do plan on doing another one, correct? Um, yeah, no, we, we, had a, we had a really good time with it. And, uh, yeah, I, I think we definitely plan on, on doing another one. I mean, that's one nice thing about sports and this kind of sort of discussion is that you, you never run out of topics. And, uh, you know, even since the books come out, we've got a lot of suggestions and we've been sort of thinking about things a bunch more. Uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it wasn't a book like I, I usually write, sort of with the beginning, a middle, and an end. I mean, it was a different experience, but it was it was real fun writing with a, with a friend, with a partner. Uh, you know, in this case, a buddy of mine for, you know, since, since I was a kid. And, um, 
yeah, I think, you know, I, I don't think it's going to be in the near future, but that's definitely, uh, we, have, we have plans afoot for uh, the second score testing, sure. You cover tennis a lot for Sports Illustrated, and it seems like with the French Open going on right now, uh, something interesting is maybe brewing on the men's side. We're just a couple of matches away from having a one versus four and two versus three. Do you think that that's really important for tennis? And do you think that tennis can kind of build a little bit of momentum if they have this great weekend to finish out uh, the French Open? Yeah, I mean, you know, selfishly, there's, there's a party that wishes um, for, for the sake of American fans that one of them were American. But, uh, well, I mean, you know, the women's the women's tennis right now is just kind of all over the map. And, uh, you know, as many as a dozen players could have won the French Open, and, and now it looks like, you know, it, it, that's still that's still the case. Uh, men's tennis, you have the exact opposite, where you've got this real sort of solid power at the top, and you've got, you know, Djokovic's, uh, the, you know, undefeated as, as we say this, and uh, Nadal is Nadal, and better is better, and Andy Murray is sort of back in the mix. Um, and yeah, I mean, we, we sort of have this core of, re- of really, really strong players that pretty reliably are getting to these last rounds of tournaments. And um, you know, I mean, again, it's it's too bad from an American selfish perspective that one of them can't be from from the U.S. But I, I think it's definitely preferable in sports to have. You know, a rivalry at the top, or these sort of reliable stars, rather than uh, you know, one tournament it's fun when you've got a wild, you know, wild card winner. But you know, the, the women's draw where the top three seeds, none of them survive the first uh, first three rounds. That's that's not uh, that's not a desirable place to be. How much left does Roger Federer have? And if he no- never won another major in his career, is he going to retire the greatest tennis player of all time? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's pretty much gravy at this point. And, you know, I mean, still, you know, he's in the semifinals. I don't know, I don't know when this show's going to air, but, uh, you know, if he beats Novak Djokovic, we, we've got a great, uh, we've got a great story on our hands. So uh, I, I think, I think, uh, you know, as much as athletes need motivation, uh, you know, I think, I think Federer's pretty much, uh, got it locked up. I mean, there are some people that say, hey, look, if he keeps losing and it disgraces himself or if, you know his, his batting average goes way down. What are we going to say? But I mean, I, I think you know he's he's won more majors than anyone. He's been number one. I mean, it's just every conceivable record uh, he owes more or less. I, I just think if you have sort of put it all in the uh, put it all in the Bassomatic and uh, add it up, and I, I think he's the best ever. And I can't imagine uh, that changing if he if he doesn't win another one. All right, it is John Wertheim from Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com. You can follow him on Twitter. He is at J-O-N underscore Wertheim. Uh, last question. Do the William, are the Williams sisters going to be a factor in tennis down the road, or have we kind of seen the last of them as elite players? Yeah, I, I mean, I think they're always going to be factors. I mean, they're just that much. They compete that much better, Serena especially, and... Uh, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, I, I divorce them a little bit. I, I put Serena ahead of Venus, but the truth is they know how to win. And, you know, you only need to win seven matches to win one of these majors. I mean, it's, it's not like you've got to put together a 162-game season. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, who, who knows if their bodies hold up, who knows what their interest level is. But basically, uh, they're 
for, for the rest of their careers, they're going to be backers in any event they enter, I think. All right. Again, it's John Wertheim uh, from Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com. What are you working on these days? Anything we can look forward to seeing in the magazine? Um, I did a piece with a baseball coach who lost an eye, which was a little different than what I normally do. What uh, What else am I working on? i got to go to Wimbledon, um, some other just sort of random random features here and there. Um, and uh, who, who knows? There, there may be an investigative surprise coming, but uh, I better, better not say much more than that. <laughs> very interesting. Okay, thank you very much for your time, and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you soon. We're going to work on Tom Verducci for you, but uh, no thanks. Anytime. Oh, yeah, we could definitely use the help because I can't track him down. Can't get him. What I can do. All right, thanks, buddy. All right, the sportscaster is back here. I want to thank John Wertheim for joining us. And it's time for the first of two championship finals previews. We will start with the NHL preview. Don and I should be up to the task of previewing this series. It is the Vancouver Canucks established along with the Sabres in 1970, making their third appearance in the finals, first since 1994. They have yet to win a Stanley Cup final against the Boston Bruins, who are an original six-team, but have not won the Stanley Cup in 39 years. So in one way or another, we are going to get a very excited fan base, a championship that's waited a long time. Yeah, and, a really and, long time, yeah. And Boston, Bruins fans are kind of in and out. I think they have a built-in excuse, as Jeremy Jacobs has not been the best owner. Uh, and it's it's odd to think that Let's see, in 1996, the Bruins thought that Ray Bork had a better chance to win a championship not being on their team than being on it. <laughs> traded him away to Colorado yep. where he did win the cup, and I think they even had a little parade for him. Well, maybe they can have a parade with the real cup this year. Maybe not. Vancouver is going to be a very tough opponent, obviously led by last year's Hart Trophy winner and this year's probable Hart Trophy winner in Daniel and Henrik Sedin. You could also mix in Kevin Bieksa. Uh, Keith Ballard, and maybe the best U.S.-born hockey player in the league right now in Ryan Kessler. Uh, goaltending is an issue for the Canucks, although Roberto Longos had maybe his best season. Yeah, he's. I, I mean, he has a reputation of being a good goal. I just, I think I've talked about this before. He doesn't pass the eyeball test for me, but this year he has been slightly more consistent. One thing to keep an eye on as the series goes on is Manny Maholcha. And uh, whatever impact he might have on the series, he has not been cleared to play. Oh, he's not? Yeah. So he's he, skating, though, right? He's skating. Right. He's close. Uh, he was not at practice on Tuesday. Uh, he had a doctor's appointment, a scheduled appointment. Uh, he has, uh, let's see, he, Alain Vanier told the media that Manny has been officially cleared to play. However, on Tuesday, GM Mike Gillis said that it's a day-to-day thing. He hasn't been cleared yet. He's been cleared for some contact, and he gets monitored every day. So, Would you let him play anyway at this point? If he's cleared to play by the doctors, I would let him play. Yeah. I think he's, he's an impact enough player. Uh, Take think, that risk. And I think he's been there all year. He's helped you get there. And if the doctors say that he can play, 
who would I be to say right, to, right. to keep him from that Stanley Cup experience if I thought he was good enough to be in the lineup? And I think he's good enough. I'm sure there's someone near the fourth line that can come out and then uh, Maholter can come in and, and make an impact. I guess he has one of their captains too. Yep, so I think that's something to look uh, for. Another thing I think that's going to be very key in this series is the performance of former University of Vermont catamount Tim Thomas. Uh, Tim Thomas is one of the best goalies in the NHL. He has a chance to win a Conn Smythe, but he has shown some signs recently of being a little bit fatigued. Uh, he's coming up off of major hip surgery, which basically kept him out of action last year, and it might be catching up to him a little bit. He had a kind of on and off Eastern Conference Finals. Yeah, he couldn't hold leads. Yeah, he, he wasn't he wasn't Tim Thomas that we've seen all year at times during the Eastern Conference Finals. So I think he's definitely a guy uh, to look forward, to look to and, and to worry about. Another guy that will be interesting is uh, Tyler Seguin. Uh, he's a guy that has kind of emerged as the playoffs has gone on, didn't get to play much early in the playoffs. He's played a little more, had some highlight reel goals. Right. Obviously, the second pick in the draft last year, young kid. It'll be interesting to see how he does. And when he's out there, uh, it gives the Canu- or the Bruins a really balanced three lines. They have their top line with Nathan Horton and Lucic, and then it, they have Bergeron's line, and then they have Shagin's line. And uh, it's basically three really balanced lines. And uh, I think that the Bruins need to be balanced if they're going to beat Vancouver. Yeah, and uh, special teams, with those three balanced lines, their power play is playing out of their mind right now. I think they're operating around or above 25%. Boston's is not going well, conversely. So Boston's going to have, with that physical style that we've played and we've, or that they play that we've mentioned, Boston's going to have to stay out of the penalty box because they just and on the flip side Vancouver doesn't have to fear penalties so much because Boston can't score so that's another slight edge to Vancouver in the offensive department here's a question for you Don if Boston wins what went right for them I think if Boston wins uh, they were somehow able to play Boston hockey which is that boring uh, smother teams physical physical right I mean they're going to beat up a slightly smaller Vancouver team and they're just going to force them out of their comfort zone, make them do things they don't like to do. Uh, maybe make them grind for some goals. I mean, they're kind of a finesse team. I mean, Kessler, not so much, but uh, some of their top scores like the Sedins and stuff, but Boston's going to have to frustrate them. I think they're going to have to play. They're going to have to play defensive. They're not going to win six, five games every night. Is there a player on either team? I think I maybe have one in mind. Let's see if you do that. If, a game goes long, could kind of be a hero. You yeah. know, like in the sense of the game's long, the top guys are sucking wind, and you need a guy who's played only 10 minutes to go out there, maybe get you a good shift and score a goal. I was thinking about maybe Christopher Higgins in that sense, although he's had a good playoffs, and he's kind of played more and more, I think, with Maholcha out. So he might not be uh, that guy necessarily. Maybe a Chris Kelly well, I was gonna for Boston. I was gonna mention uh, not that he's that type of player necessarily either. I don't know his exact minutes, but I was gonna mention like a, a Sagan that uh, 
he doesn't necessarily. I don't believe he's the type of guy that plays your twenty five minutes a night. So he should be fresh. He's young. So in a long overtime scenario, uh, I don't think Vancouver wants to see him on the ice at all. Yeah, I, I think Chris Kelly's maybe a scary uh, player in that in that situation. And like I said, I like Higgins on the other side. If Vancouver wins, what went right there? I think if Vancouver wins, they just played the way they have been. I think uh, Luongo doesn't beat doesn't beat them up. Like you know, he doesn't lose the game for them. Uh, I just think they have to continue to play the way they play. I mean, Tampa Bay, who probably isn't as prolific an offensive team as Vancouver, was able to score some goals minus a game or two against Boston. So I just think Vancouver, uh, just stay the course. Just keep doing what you're doing, and I think they should win it. (laughs) That's that's the end of that sentence. (laughs) Yeah, Henrik Sedin. Two goals, 19 assists. That's insane. So far in the playoffs, uh, Ryan Kessler, seven goals, 11 assists. I think those two just decide like, at the beginning of the year, like, do you want to set up the goals this year or do you want to <laughs> score the goals? It's something else. Um, yeah, eight goals scored in the playoffs so far for Daniel Sedin, eight assists, 16 points. They're both a minus four, but they're out there a ton. So David Krejci, top five in goal score, or points, overall yep, points. Yep, 10 10 goals. So there's there's a guy that kind of makes a name for himself in the playoffs. Yeah, that, t- 10 goals. Oh, he's getting basically first-line minutes with right. Nathan Horton and uh, uh, Lucic. Lucic is a bull, and Hort- he's going to annoy people. Nathan Horton's another guy. Like how, how much, if you're a Florida Panthers fan, like somewhere out there, how much do you hate Nathan Horton right now? You hate him because he didn't give you all that he had, and it's obvious. Yeah, not at all. Right. It's obvious now that he's in a situation maybe where there's more of a fan base, maybe where it's more exciting to come to work. Maybe maybe he's the kind of guy that needs to be motivated by success, and when there was no opportunities for success in Florida, it just kept him from bringing it to work every night, and I think that's frustrating for a fan who spends money on tickets. Right. You know, you. I think we expect that each athlete – giving 100% each night, but I think that's fantasy. And I think the the truth is is that these guys need to find certain things to motivate them. And Nathan Horton, who's got a Playboy wife at home and a lot of money, I think is driven by success and uh, being able to accomplish this things in hockey other than scoring the fifth goal of the season in the 13th game <laughs> of a 40-loss year in Florida or something. Yeah, he's been a thirty goal scorer in Florida, but I don't. They've. I don't think they've ever been to the playoffs with him on the team. So no, they haven't been to the playoffs since nineteen ninety six, uh, or once with Pavel Bury two thousand. So it's been a while since they've sniffed playoffs. It's been a while since they've sniffed fans. Would you rather have Nathan? I mean, this is off topic. But would you rather have Nathan Horton right now, or uh, would you rather sign Drew Stafford? They might be the same draft year, too. No, Horton's from the big draft. Oh, yeah, he's from 03. Yeah, I would probably rather have Stafford just because I think there's right now they're maybe equal. I think there's a little bit more upside for Stafford yet. I think Nathan Horton has peaked. I think this is probably his best year as a pro. And maybe you could say the same thing about Stafford. Right, but, right. They're very but similar I still, players. I still hold out, hold out hope that there's a little bit more growth in Stafford yet. Right, you just hope that Stafford isn't like a guy playing for a paycheck. If the Vancouver Canucks win, who will be the Conn Smythe Trophy winner? <sighs> I guess you got to say Sedin. I can't remember which one you mentioned, but the one that has the That's 19 assists. That's leading the points, Henrik Sedin. Yeah, yeah. I, 
It would hard. It'd be hard to give it to the goalie. Uh, Kessler is an interesting pick, but I mean that would be like. Yeah, he's fourth overall in scoring. Right, right. So I mean, I guess it could be. I mean, he is the captain too. If the Bruins win, that's maybe a harder question. And you know what? The Bruins thing is maybe there's no answer yet. You know, if the Bruins were to win, I guess right now you'd probably give it to Tim Thomas and call it a day. But I think there's some room for someone to steal it from maybe, Tim Thomas. Maybe Chara. Maybe Chara. He doesn't have a ton of points, but it's pl- I mean, he's just the guy there. And but it's going to be tough with a low point total really to get right, right. maybe a look from a... Thomas has been chased in a few games, though, hasn't he? I mean, it's... Yeah, but Cam Ward was chased in a couple yeah, of games when true. he won it. Yeah, that's true. You know, and... If Vancouver is going to win this series, I think Tim Thomas is going to have to be a good player Boston's anyway. Win, right, right. If Boston's going to win, so yeah, you're probably right. Nobody on Boston. I mean, unless David Krejci really is, has a look at it, but uh, nobody else is really up there other than Horton and points. And I don't think you give it to Horton either. No, but now if Horton scores two overtime winners in the right, series right. or something, then then maybe he's a guy. So that's why I'd say right now I'd probably say if the Bruins win, it's Tim Thomas's award to lose. But I think there's probably a player on that bench, maybe a Krejci, maybe a Horton, uh, who can steal it during you know, the series. Bergeron's got 15 points, so he's up there too. He's got and the, Bergeron is a plus nine. Right. You Horton's know, a 10. Two-way player. So, I mean, oh, Horton's a 10. Wow. But, I mean, Horton's a winger too. So, I mean, I – from what I've seen, Horton seems like, I mean, you've got to make your own luck. You've got to be in the right spots to score. But he seems like he's been in a lot of the right places in the right time. But I, I would tend to give it to the center more than the winger. But like you said, see who scores an overtime goal or two. You have, a, you have a few Buffalo tie-ins over there? Yes, I do. Uh, for Buffalo sports fans, the most depressing one <laughs> would be if Vancouver wins the Stanley Cup, one Rafi Torres will Ugh. have his name etched in there. Big, fat, lazy bastard, lazy, broken, hurt hand or whatever. Randy useless. Torres. One of the most useless Sabres of all time. And that's, we're going to get on a Sabres tangent here, but I like that move when they made it. He's a guy that kind of made his reputation well, in the Well, he immediately was that. on the team. He immediately was the leading goal scorer when they traded for right, him. Right, right. And Co- then I don't Columbus. think he scored a goal for us. Yeah, he might not have in his career. I mean, same with like Dominic Moore. So... Uh, people will say, though, Darcy Regeer should know better than me as a fan. <laughs> but I liked both Moore and Torres But until they were actually on my team, and then I hated them both. But, uh, yeah, Torres plays for Vancouver. Uh, Dan- 16 playoff games, by the way. Torres has been nice enough to chime in with two goals and two assists. Okay, so he's not exactly lighting Bomb. up. Yeah, he's no good. Dan Paye was a saber I kind of liked, hardworking guy. I think he was just a... Kind of a numbers casualty. He was a restricted free agent. They didn't want to pay him what he was getting. Yeah, you know, I think one of the cool things about Dan Pye, too, is he was a team candidate captain when Sidney Crosby, Crosby was on was the there, junior right. team. And uh, I think getting away from Buffalo, um, I think the Sabres kind of gave up on him a little too quick. Yeah. Uh, I think, and I think he's showing that in Boston. Um, again, not as the exact same stat line as Torres with two goals and two assists, him in 18 playoff games. But I think Pia gives you a little bit more on the defensive end. I think he's a lot more physical. He can hit, yeah. And I think it's the perfect team for him because they play such a physical style and he does have the size to hit and bang on the boards and stuff like that. I think he's the type of player that like his upside would be like a, a good third-line player or ideally your team is good enough where you can play him on your fourth line. Like I think he probably offers you more than uh, Pat Coletta does. Maybe not the big highlight reel hits, but uh, he's not going to take you. He's a little more defensively responsible, and um, I probably agree that they give up on him a little too soon. 
Uh, the other Buffalo tie-in, uh, Keith Ballard, was drafted by the Sabres. I don't, First round pick. Don't think he ever played a game, but he nope. was eleventh overall pick in the draft. Yeah, he was indirectly involved in the Chris, Chris Drury. Drury trade. He was traded for Ryan Precht. Uh and Nathan Horton, not a Buffalo boy, but close enough. He's about forty minutes away. Grew up right around where I think you said Dan Pye did in Welland. Yeah, in Welland, they both grew up there. And Nathan Horton did most of his training at a rink called. Oh, I can't think what the ring's called, but it's right over the border in Fort Erie. And he did a lot of training there. And my brother actually skated with him quite a bit in a clinic called Playmakers. And uh, the guy who runs Playmakers is Daryl uh, Belfry. And he was at the draft with Nathan Horton. Is that the one that you did uh, some work at? Is that the clinic? No, I. this was a much less official clinic. I worked at the Sp- Sports International Hockey Academy for a guy we call Bobby Poopy Pants <laughs> and a uh, French-Canadian guy who, oh, long story. <laughs> uh, no no Stanley Cup tie-ins there. No? But, uh, no. It's shocking. Bobby Poopy Pants will not figure in, <laughs> although I'm sure he'll watch it. He's a big Canadians fan. So. That's his tie-in. He will watch the Stanley yeah, Cup Yeah, and he will probably root for the Canadian team since he is Canadian Sounds and probably right. doesn't like the Bruins being a Canadians fan. Right, right. All right, I will just go out there first. I'm going to take the Canucks in six, and I'm going to pick Kessler to be the consummate winner. I, <laughs> it's not that fun, but I will also take the Canucks in six, and I will take uh, Henrik as the Conn Smythe Trophy winner. We'll be right back with Lee Jenkins and a preview of the very exciting NBA Finals. All right, we are back on the Sportscasters. And, you know, I have to say, uh, before we get going with our next guest, that anytime you can call a senior writer from Sports Illustrated uh, since 2007, so it's not like he was hired yesterday, and you can, you, can, you can call him on a Monday night before the NBA Finals start on a Tuesday and ask him for 15 minutes to go over the NBA Finals, and he says, yes, you know, you're dealing with the class of the earth and a super very, very nice guy. And I want to thank or someone who's not that who doesn't work that hard. I, I want to thank <laughs> Lee Jenkins for joining us. How are you doing today, Lee? Good, good. It's good to have you uh, back on the Sportscasters. We thanks always for having me. we always appreciate having you. And you know, we we're not the we're, we're not the best basketball guys. We're just gonna you know be honest about it. We're from Buffalo, New York. We don't have a basketball team here. You know, we're pretty much hockey football all the time. Uh, but it seems like a different kind of year with basketball, and this is why I think we found a villain. And I don't think we ever had a villain before, but Buffalo can relate to Cleveland. Similar cities. We're both on Lake Erie. Uh, we've had our similar ups and downs, similar uh, disasters in sports. And I think when LeBron James left Cleveland, we felt it in Buffalo in a way that we've never felt it for basketball before in the sense that we could feel that pain. It happened to us in 2007 when both of our captains walked away, Chris Drury and Daniel Briere, walked away from a President's uh, Trophy Buffalo Sabres team. So I think it's a different year for basketball in Buffalo because of a villain in LeBron James. And do you think that's kind of the way in the country, too? I know the ratings have been very high. Yeah. No, I think uh, I think you've definitely hit on something. I think a lot of small markets can relate. And you know, you look at sports that are really successful – 
you look at the Yankees and to some degree even the Red Sox at this point um, in baseball, and then you look at Duke in college basketball, there's always a resentment toward the teams you feel like can get any players they want and, and sort of these stacked teams. Um, and the Heat is that. And LeBron is the face of it, obviously, because he was the, the biggest addition to it. Um, so, I, you know, I think that ba- I'm, I'll be honest, I'm not really a basketball guy either. I came up covering f- baseball and football. Uh, but basketball is you know, kind of an easier sport to understand. I mean, there, there are tons of nuances to it, but it's not quite like, like baseball and football where it's sort of harder to wrap your head around it. It's a, it's a personality-driven league and, and sport. You have kind of more stars. Um, you see their faces. There are no helmets, face masks. It, it's all about these people, and they kind of get parsed and discussed and debated constantly what's in their heads and their hearts, even though a lot of times people don't really know. It, it's fun to project. Um, and they sort of enter this um, th- this funny stage, really, where there's just there's just always debate about them. And so LeBron has has kind of filled that void, unlike anyone else, for a long time. Now you did have a villain team. I mean, the, the Detroit Pistons were like that um, back in the Isaiah Thomas bad right. boy uh, days. They were almost like the Raiders or something. I, I don't really view the Heat that way. Um, it's more that they've touched something that is, I think, more current about professional sports. Um, and even to some degree college sports, which is this feeling, um, you know, the smaller colleges have, the smaller cities have, that they can't keep up, that the level of the playing field just is not level, you know, soft calories, salary cap, hard salary cap, whatever, um, you know, m- most cities feel that way to some extent, you know, I'm from San Diego, we're not a lot like Cleveland or even Buffalo, but I relate in the same way as you're talking about because you lose your best players. You yeah. train them and you grow them and then you lose them. So I think you're right. I think everybody um, can find a reason to look at the Heat as that as that big guy who's coming and stepping on you. Yeah, and you know it's an interesting dilemma for Buffalo because I know the whole city has gotten behind the we hate the Heat thing, but here comes Dallas, and that's a sports city that has... <laughs> Spurned Buffalo, say the least. Two Super Bowl losses, uh, a Stanley Cup Finals loss. Um, so it's an interesting dilemma. But I, I think that Buffalo will easily put the losses aside to cheer for the Mavericks because another thing that's interesting and maybe adjust of position to the LeBron James thing is that a lot of people really like Mark Cuban. Now, there's definitely people who dislike Mark Cuban, but there's a, a huge segment of the population that roots for Mark Cuban because, again, he seems like an everyday guy who kind of, well, you know, he does, he's different than, than the other owners, I guess we'll just put it that way. And he's different in a, good, in a way that appeals to a lot of fans. Well, look, everybody wants their favorite team to be owned by somebody who cares as much as they do about right. that team. And people, not and not many people can say that. You know, not many organizations, fans can really say that. They can hope for it, um, but in the end, if you if you get to know owners and you've been around sports long enough, you know it's just not the case. People in Dallas who root for the Mavericks, they go to bed at night every night knowing that their owner um, probably is taking each loss as hard, if not harder, uh, than they are. And that's a very comforting thing, and it, it shows in the way he's built his team and the money that they're willing to spend and the chances they're willing to take. I mean, you look at this team this year, it's like, you know, a guy like Paige Stoyakovich, for instance, he was on the market. A lot of teams could have had him. The Lakers could have had him. Any owner who just wanted to spend that little extra uh, could have had him. 
and the Mavericks were the ones to do it. Tyson Chandler, you know, last summer, the Mavericks spent, I don't know the exact terms, but they spent a bunch of money to lock up Brendan Haywood, their, their center. Mm-hmm. Ten days later, Tyson Chandler comes on the market. Most owners say, oh, I've already got my center. I just paid him. In the Mavericks case, they were like, well, this is an opportunity. We're going to go get this guy, and it, it meant more money that they would have to spend on the same position. A lot of people thought it was kind of a repetitive player, um, but in the end, that's why they're in the finals. They're in the finals because they have an owner who makes a commitment uh, the way few other owners do. Now, you might not like his manner, you know, the way he kind of runs around, you know, some of the things he says. You know, people might not like that about him, but you can't ever question the commitment. Yeah, and at, at you said there's very few, and I was trying to think of others. Maybe Ted Leonsis, the owner of the Capitals, is that way. And uh, again, to bring Buffalo up, our new uh, hockey owner seems to be that way, or at least uh, coming through the door, he, he's claimed to be and really created a buzz. So maybe there's a connection there. But let's get into the series. You know, one thing I want to oh, say yeah. about that, if we, if we yeah. can stick on it for one thing, is sure. there's a difference between being um, – you know, just because you're outspoken, I mean, there are a couple kinds of owners. Well, one is sort of the outspoken promoter type, but that, and just because a guy's like that doesn't really mean he could be a salesman. It doesn't really mean that he's bleeding over it the way a fan would, because when, 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 if, when there's a fan at heart, you know that they're going to make decisions that may not be the best for the po- their pocketbook, but are going to be the best for their ball club. And that's what kind of we're always looking for. And I think sometimes one gets confused with the other, like, oh, he's outspoken, he's a promoter type. Well, that means he'll do it. He'll, he'll, he'll make those kind of calls. I think maybe it's more likely, but it's not definite. You can have owners that are quieter. You know, I, I got to spend some time last year with, um, with Peter O'Malley, who used to be the Dodgers owner. He's not a showman. He's not a Mark Cuban uh, personality type, but he cares about the Do- he cared about the Dodgers um, to a depth that is the same as a fan, and it was reflected in the way he ran that team when he was their owner. Yeah, and it's it makes a world of difference too. You know, when when I am get Terry Pagula, like I mentioned, coming in uh, to Buffalo here, owning the Sabers, and saying the things he said and doing the things he did, it makes me it makes it a lot easier for me to put down that first. You know, two hundred eighty-five, three hundred dollars for season tickets next year, uh, because you know that you know that the owner cares and that the owner is going to try to put the best possible team on the ice in this case for you. You know what I'm saying? No, I no doubt about it. It's, it's everything. I mean, yeah. it really, it's, it's everything. There, are, there are always exceptions. Bad owners break through. You know, I thought we had, we had a kind of interesting situation with the NFL a couple of years ago where you had both. The Cardinals and the Saints, two of traditionally the worst owners in professional sports, yeah. both in the Super Bowl in consecutive years. So, you know, the exceptions happen, but generally speaking, you know, you think about like the Steelers, you know, the Rooney family. Mm-hmm. I mean, the great owners are generally the ones who get there. You know, where I'm from, people are always like, why can't we win? Why do we never win a championship? And I, I would say, well, look at the top. You know, look at the people making the decisions, who's hiring the GM, who's making those calls, who's, you know, making those little moves to put you over the top. I mean, to me, it's the most important thing is ownership. And it's funny you bring up the Saints because uh, Tom, Benson, Tom Benson went from being probably the most hated man in the state of Louisiana uh, to being accepted to run around on the field with his umbrella in the span of about <laughs> nine months, you know, because Drew Brees happened. You know, he didn't change at all. He's still probably the, uh, you know, businessman, cut your throat, steal the team from New Orleans in a <laughs> second if he could. 
But Drew Brees came and Sean Payton came and they started winning. And now the guy can dance on the field with his umbrella. It's kind of a funny well, thing. Well, I mean, it was a funny situation because, like, in that Brees situation, I mean, you know, I give them credit. They paid for Brees and nobody else would. It wasn't like Drew Brees had a bunch of suitors paying no, the same just amount of money. Miami and New Orleans, Orleans. really. They were yeah. Miami and New Orleans, and, and, and the money there was, it was, it was a huge disparity. It was, it was kind of a no-brainer of a decision for him, to be honest. Um, so, yeah, so they paid him, and a lot of credit. You know, whatever. When you win that big, credit goes to everybody, and it's never as simple as necessarily like a good owner and a bad owner. Um, but you're right. Mark Cuban, any fan who doesn't like him, if you offered them a chance to have their favorite team owned by Mark Cuban, <laughs> they would like him all of a sudden. Yeah, and anytime his name comes up for a baseball team, that, that fan base is immediately hooked. Let's just get into the series a little bit. So yeah, yeah. Let's, say, let's say Dallas is going to pull this off and win. What are the keys to the series for Dallas? What has to happen uh, for them to be able to beat the Heat 4 out of 7? Well, you know, it's almost like you hear this a lot in the NCAA tournament, like, like you have these teams that are great three-point shooting teams, and you sort of hear, well, if they make their threes, they're going to win, and if they don't, they're going to lose. And it, you know, it's, it's not that simple in this situation, but it, there are some, some similarities. The, the Mavericks are an incredible three-point shooting team, and they really are good at spacing the floor, and they've shot at a sublime level through this postseason, especially against, against the Lakers. So they're going to have to shoot, to me, lights out again. They're just going to have to, the three is going to have to be their biggest weapon. The Heat's really good defensively inside and protecting the rim. They're not as good at kind of scrambling out and rotating and, and covering three-point shooters. Um, so when I see it, you know, Dirk Nowitzki's going to have a, have a transcendent series. That, that's pretty obvious. But those other guys are going to have to keep shooting at the same clip they shot in, especially against the Lakers when they were just out of this world. Same question for the Heat. If they're going to win the four out of seven against Dallas, what are the keys for them? Um, well, I think that they're going to take advantage of just the fact that the Mavs don't really have anybody to match up with those with their wings. I mean, Karam Butler could have really helped in this situation, um, but he's hurt, obviously. He's got a knee injury. I guess they're saying that there's a potential chance he could come back, but unlikely in the series. So they're going to have to find a way um, they're going to have to find a way to, to match up with those two guys. And what they're going to do is they're going to pack the paint and probably throw something that looks like a zone at the heat and make them into jump shooters, make LeBron James and Dwayne Wade take a ton of jump shots. And if, if that happens, those guys can miss a bunch of jump shots. They've been, you know, LeBron's been a great jump shooter in these playoffs, but it doesn't mean uh, that that would last, you know. So I, I think that's probably the key for, for Dallas. A couple of years ago when these two teams played in the finals, Dallas was really, really close to taking a 3 to nothing lead in the series. And then there was maybe some controversial, f controversial foul calls and Dwayne Wade getting to the line and things like that. Is there a certain way that the game will be officiated that might favor one team over the other? If you know what yeah, I mean. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, it's funny you say that. I, there, aren't a lot of, there aren't a lot of parts of the 06 series that can be applied to this series now, except there is some concern. I was around the Mavs last week, and there is some concern um, about something similar happening in terms of a parade to the line. I mean, when you watch Wade and James, and they're constantly attacking the basket, um, if they start to get a bunch of calls, and, and we see a series that's officiated a little bit more tightly, I think that's going to be a huge advantage for the Heat, because it just could end up being a lot like 06, where they're parading to the line. 
know, you look at the Lakers series against the Mavs with Kobe Bryant, a huge star, he really didn't get a lot of calls. That went the way the Mavs would have wanted it to go. Um, even though he was kind of trying to drive into the teeth of their defense, it wasn't working. Um, they kept him outside. So I think that's sort of the, an interesting part of that 06 specter um, is could it become just a free throw shooting contest again? And if it does, it's a huge advantage for the Heat. I feel like uh, Dirk maybe has, over the course of these playoffs, kind of uh, restored his image in the sense that I know there was a lot of uh, people who were saying he didn't get it done in the playoffs. Maybe he was a choker. Going into the finals, do you, who do you think has the most pressure on them? Does Dirk need to finish this? Does LeBron need to justify the I'm bringing my talents to South Beach statement? Who, who do you think has the most pressure on them to perform? I mean, that's tough. I mean, I guess from... From like a media pressure kind of kind of standpoint, it would be LeBron. Um, from an internal standpoint, I think it's it's probably Dirk because look, LeBron's going to win a championship. He's going to win a few. This is probably the worst of these Heat teams that we're going to see going forward. So right. I mean, he could lose this one and still win th- the next three. LeBron could, and then the narrative will change all the way over again. You know, but for right now, to me, Dirk isn't going to have another shot potentially for a, for a while. I mean, he might never have another chance again. It's not just that he's older, because he's 32. He's going to have cracks left at this. It's that if you look at his cast around him, you know, a lot of guys who are 33 years old, point guard who's 38 years old, this team is getting older. So I don't know how many more cracks, especially with the Thunder emerging, they're going to have. Uh, but look, if LeBron doesn't win it, it's going to be the same old chorus. And then in that situation, people like me will say about Nowitzki, um, if he didn't win it, well, look at his supporting cast. It's not even close to the level that LeBron has. I mean, really, what, what, what the Mavs are trying to do is a throwback. I mean, they're trying to win a title with one star, one star and some, you know, and some good complementary pieces. The Heat have three stars. Right. Yeah, it, it's, it, seems, it seems like the Heat... The Heat are obviously the favorite in the series, right? I mean, they've, they've elevated their game from being kind of mediocre at times during the season to being what everyone thought they would be, a team that could potentially win 70 games, kind of steamrolled through the playoffs, and now here they are, you know, only four wins away from accomplishing what they put this team together to do, and it seems like now Dallas has to try to chip down. Dallas is kind of the, the David where Miami would be the Goliath, right? No doubt about it. I mean, that's how I see it. And, and then on top of that, you have a situation in the finals where you really don't want to have you, know, you, want, you want the home court because otherwise you have to play the three games in the middle. I mean, when you break it down, it's like if Miami can win the first two at home, they only need to win one game out of the three in Dallas, and the series is essentially over. They would close it back in Miami. So, it, yeah, I mean, to me, they're the odds-on favorite um, in, in this just because they've, they've figured it out. And the thing about them that is underrated and they don't get – maybe the credit they deserve, is that they really did buy into defense this year. I mean, for as many incredibly gifted offensive players as they have and guys who are kind of seen, as as Joakim Noah put it, Hollywood as hell, um, they play really hard-nosed, active, aggressive defense, and it's been what they've done all season. It's been there for them even when their rhythm was off and things were going wrong in the beginning of the season. Um, And so to me, that's sort of um, something that I think this team will be remembered for in some ways is that for this year when they were still figuring it out, um, they hung their hat on defense. And moving forward, I just think they're going to be, once they kind of, because they can get better offensively. I mean, Wade and James can figure it out even more, which is scary for the rest of the league and yeah. for everyone who hates the heat. Yeah. 
Sportscasters here with our good buddy Lee Jenkins. You can find him on Twitter. He is at SI underscore Lee Jenkins. Uh, also on SI.com and, of course, in the magazine. A couple more questions for you about the series. Jason Kidd, 38 years old, is going to be the oldest guard to ever start in the finals. What do you think this run to the finals, potentially winning a championship, uh, means to his, to his overall legacy? I mean, I think... Uh I mean, I think that his legacy is secure either way. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I think it goes echoes for a lot of these guys. I think it's kind of overblown sometimes. When you look at how many great players didn't win a championship, you know, to me it won't take away from Jason Kidd's career if he doesn't. I mean, he's been, um, it's just been an incredible career. I mean, from from being a a, a Bay Area legend when he was 14 years old um, to being the guy who completely changed the Nets franchise and took them to two championships. I mean, he has made so many players' careers easier. I, I talked to Ed Stefanski, the Sixers GM last week about him, and he said a lot of us owe some commission of our contracts to Jason Kidd. And he's not talking about executives. He's talking also about players. Um, and just the other thing about Kidd right now that's sort of interesting is we're in this era of the scoring point guard and the kind of, you know, these fantastically athletic lead guards, Rose, Westbrook, you know, people like that. And Kidd is sort of this reminder of what the old-fashioned point guard is and, and what you're kind of supposed to be, just making everybody else better, setting people up. And there's no doubt that, that Nowitzki's benefited from his presence. So, you know, if they win it, it'll be a, a great capper for Jason Kidd just because you know, we always hear these storylines about these old dudes who are in championships in every sport, and it's like, oh, he finally won his championship, and they play, what, eight minutes a game or something like that usually. And the difference with Kidd is he has an extremely important role right. in the series. He could end up being the guy, he probably will end up being the guy who defends LeBron James late in games. I mean, can you believe that? He's going to be giving up like 40 pounds to him, and I think even know, like five inches or something, four inches. Yeah, four inches, 40 pounds, and 12 years. He'll be, not, wow. be giving up to LeBron James. And this is the guy who already was in charge of shutting down Kevin Durant and Kobe Bryant in the previous rounds and did a good job. So he's going to be doing that on one end. And then on the other end, he's going to be the guy feeding Dirk. And chances are he'll be the guy that the Heat kind of helps off and leaves for open three. So he could end up making some huge shots in this series also. So to me, it's not just that he's 38 because we kind of – you know, we've seen older guys, and it's like, can they win their ring? It's that he's 38 and, and really making an impact. Uh, Dwayne Wade is practicing. He insists he's not hurt. Uh, is there any injury concerns in this series at all, or are both teams relatively healthy, you know, based on where they are in the season, almost 100 games in or whatever? Yeah, I mean, I think you never really know about the Wade situation. I think that's kind of an that'll be something that probably comes out later on. You know, guys sometimes don't want to um, don't want to say anything, don't want to admit that. So it'll be interesting to watch just to see if he's at full strength. But chances are, the reason his series wasn't so good last the last series was just that the Bulls' defense is is really really good. And even though the Mavs have a lot more scoring weapons than the Bulls did, and that's that's getting a lot of attention. They also just aren't as good defensively as as the Mavs are, or sorry, as the Bulls are. So I I, I kind of expect Wade to have a, a much better series now that he's away from the clutches of Chicago and Keith Bogans and some of those. I mean, some of their like two three defenders are among the best in the league or most rugged in the league. So what's your prediction? I'll, I'm going to go with the Heat in, uh, I think, for the web, I think I said the Heat in six. But I could see winning in five. I, I think the Heat, um, 
I think the Heat roll. I really yeah. do. I mean, I, I think the Mavs will make they'll make it interesting. They'll make you know, and and I and I I must say that the Mavs in late game situations have been really impressive, um, but I think the Heat all year struggled late in fourth quarters, and they've sort of figured that out. I mean, they they've just become a more poised late fourth quarter team. Um, so yeah, I do I do like them to win, and uh, you know, and really a lot of it just comes down to again how Dallas matches up with with two transcendent wings. They were able to do it in the last two rounds when they only had to deal with one. Now they have to deal with two, and, and, and that's just that's just a lot to ask for a team that, again, is counting on Jason Kidd as its top perimeter defender. Right. Sportscasters, Lee Jenkins. Again, it's at SI underscore Lee Jenkins. You can find him at SI.com and in the magazine. And this is my favorite question to ask you every time you're on. And uh, we'll let you go after this. But uh, I always like to know, what are you working on for the magazine? Because it's fun then to be able to read it later. Well, I actually have a story about about Jason Kidd in this week's um, feature about him in this week's magazine. Uh, They'll come out tomorrow. Uh, So I appreciate that. And then, you know, what's weird is the way we cover the finals is, you know, our deadline is Sunday night. Mm -hmm. So the story that I'll do this week for next week's magazine, it has to be like a partial series story so you don't know if it'll be 2-1 somebody or 3 nothing somebody um, but it's, so you want to pick like an angle that can go either way so I'm pro- what I'm probably going to end up doing is writing about um, you know just how the how the heat go at Dirk how they try to stop him and then segue a little bit into uh, you know just what Dirk's done to become this sort of unguardable player everybody's talked about, and likewise what the Heat's done uh, and how Eric Spolster got them to buy into defense um, when you have so many guys who love to score on that team. Okay, so I'm all set for midnight tonight. It's a great <laughs> cool, thing. Man. It's a great thing about the iPad is that you just wait till midnight and then the ma- the magazine just appears on the app there and then I download it and I go right to Lee Jenkins writing about Jason Kidd and I'm ready to go. Well, great. Well, thank you so much for that. Thing. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for joining us, Lee. All right. Take it easy. Talk to you soon. All right, the sportscaster's back for one last segment here in a two-week, two-episode week of the podcast. want to thank Lee Jenkins for making time for us at the NBA Finals. also want to thank James Wor- Wertheim for stopping by. And uh, we have one more, one more piece of business to do before we call it a week, Don. And as season one starts to get to the point where we're going to wrap up, me and you have somewhat debated what we're going to do with this last segment going forward. Pick four, I think, is a cool idea, but... It was embarrassing. We suck at it. Yeah. We can't win ever. And I don't think that's helping our credibility at all. So we've, <laughs> we've thrown a bunch of ideas around as to how to close out each show. And one idea we had is something that we essentially have blatantly stolen from the very old Bob Costas show on HBO, which I believe was called Off the Record or On the Record or something like that. And each show would end with the producers asking Bob Costas nine questions that he had 90 seconds to answer. And uh, it was usually pretty fun. So I actually tried it in a podcast that I did a few years ago for the Buffalo Wings and it went over pretty good. So we are going to try it out here today. 
and we have a friend here to do it with us. His name is John Cohen. He's from Buffalo, New York, and uh, he is a member of the Windsor Spitfires of the OHL. Uh, he's a veteran of that league, having played for not only Windsor, but also Niagara, Kingston, and Sarnia. His mullet, smile, and outgoing personality makes him one of the most interviewed players in the OHL. He's also a captain of an FHL team and an emerging star on the roller hockey team they call Diversity. <laughs> a warm sportscaster's welcome to John Cohen. How are you doing today, John? Good. Thanks for having me on, Steve. Are you excited to be the guinea pig in this experiment that we will call 990? I am very excited. I think it'll go over extremely well, especially with that introduction you gave me. I don't see how it couldn't. This is how it's going to work. We're going to put 90 seconds on an imaginary clock. I'm not certain we're going to pay attention to the 90-second time limit or not today. I'll keep an eye on it. But we are going to ask you as many questions in that 90-second time period, and you can answer each question with as long or short of an answer as you feel fit. However, keep in mind the fact that we have only 90 seconds to get into it, but also remember that if I find you interesting enough, I probably will ignore the clock and just answer, <laughs> ask all nine questions anyway. Got it? Perfect. Any questions? All right, Don, you're going to start the clock? It is, in essence, ready to be started whenever you start your questions. All right, yeah, you started at the end of question number one, which is, many have compared your personality to, jo- to Don Cherry's coats. Who brings more color to hockey, you or Don Cherry? As much as I want to pump my own tires here, I'm going to have to give it to Don Cherry. He's, uh, he's an icon for the game, and uh, you know he's done so much work on and off the ice. Like, I grew up watching Coach's Corner, and I'm staying with you, I'm sure. So I'm going to have to give that one to Don, but I mean, it gives me something to shoot for. Growing up in Buffalo, New York, many 1991 birth-year hockey players have emerged as OHL, USHL, and Division I players. What player or two or three do you think has the most NHL potential? Oh, that's a tough feed. Um, 91 birth years. I'm going to have to go with three players. That'll be Joe Rogalski, Anthony Day, and myself. Um, we're all members of the Squirt Major Buffalo Eagles team, and you know we're moving forward. Me and Joe were teammates in Sarnia, and um, Anthony's got a full IDL. So it'll be exciting to see the next few years. We all got the tools in the toolbox, so... It'll be exciting to see us all in the NHL in a few years. Number three, who has been the hardest player for you to stop since playing in the OHL? Ooh, that's a toughie. Um, I'll give you a list of three. Taylor Hall, because he was so dynamic in the scoring area. Logan Couture, my rookie year in Ottawa, he, he used that big ice so well that he'd give himself three, four chances a game. And I think the last one has to be John Tavares. I had the pleasure of stopping him in a breakaway and... You had the pleasure of getting a hat-trick on me in the preseason, so here's my top three. Number four, which OHL superstar are you confident goes to bed with thoughts of John Cohen dancing in his head? Zach Cassian, 100%. <laughs> Number five, Jack Cassian, sore subject here. Number five, Hockey DB talks of a John Cohen who played 621 NHL games and scored 187 goals. Do you know if he had a mullet as stylish as yours? I believe he did have a mullet at some point because he played in the 90s, but uh, I, I think we can all say for sure it wasn't established as mine. I think I'm bringing a new element to the mullet here, but um, John Collins has been a role model of mine since I can remember not only having the same name, but his ability to battle through cancer and you know have a lengthy NHL career is something any young player can admire. Besides the NHL players, who is the best player in the FHL? 
Really tough question. I'm going to have to go with my two uh, my two AHL boys, Kevin Quick and Nick Schaus. I think they, uh, you know, their their speed and you know their creativity with the puck makes them the top players in the league and gives the Cougars an advantage. <laughs> Do you think there should be more goalie fights in hockey at Summer Seven? We got to be well over ninety Absolutely. at this point. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. I don't. I think the goalie fights. I mean, we saw what happened this year with Tim Thomas and Kerry Price. It's great for the game. It gets the fans going. I think. You know, fights bring more people to the games than keep them away. So um, I think goalie fights, there should be at least one every weekend. So I'm, <laughs> I'm down for that, and I'm going to try to introduce it to the OHL this coming season. Number eight, the NHL announced today that a team is headed back to Winnipeg. Should they be the Jets or something different? I'd love to see the Jets. I was a big fan of the throwback unis. Um, I know there are some stipulations there with Phoenix still owning the rights, but I think it'd be also cool to see a new... Uh, a new, uh, new team, a new logo there, but, you know, it's exciting to have another team back in Winnipeg. Uh, they, treat, they treat hockey like it's the only thing up there in Canada, so it's good to see another Canadian team. And lastly, number nine, how long do you plan on walking around with that hideous mullet? Hideous is a tough, tough adjective to use there, <laughs> but you know what? I'm going to keep it going. I think the boys in Windsor really liked it. Uh, the fans, they gave me a warm welcome, but ever since I've been back home, people have been looking at me kind of funny, wondering if I'm homeless, but... It's definitely going to be here for next season, and we'll see, uh, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> All right, John Cullen, that's nine in much more than 90, I'm sure, Don. Yeah, just uh, about 10 <laughs> seconds under four minutes. <laughs> 10 <laughs> seconds under four minutes. <laughs> so not Whoa. quite 90 seconds, but thank you very much for joining us for that. Uh, thanks again to Lee Jenkins. Thanks to John Wertheim. Don, cue the hip, and we'll see everybody <laughs> next week. Thanks again, guys. Thanks, thank Johnny. You. All right.